We are on a series, and, if, and here's the interesting thing. We're going to see if we can do it. I got 30 minutes. I can get that done. I can preach in 30 minutes. I can do it. We're on this series, everybody. Joshua. This, is, uh, this has been about courage. We're looking at courage, and here's a very important thing to know about how we're looking at this, and I would say how Joshua, the book, teaches it. It is not about five simple steps to be more brave. We are not looking at how to be brave. We're looking for what reason should we be brave? What's the source of our courage? The book may be called Joshua, but God is the lead character. God is the source of our courage, and he is the reason for our boldness. That's the meaning of what we're looking through. So we've been going through this, uh, jumping a few chapters every week, um, and learning a bit more about the story that is here. There are um, several times in Scripture where God leaves nothing to be questioned as to who did the thing. He makes sure that things get pulled away, that it is miraculous, that nobody can say we did it because we're clever, or we did it because of our initiative or because of our excellence. It is going to clearly be the only explanation as it was an absolute miracle of God. It could be Gideon, the judge, who came out to fight the enemies of God with just a few people. They hardly had any weapons. And God said, you know what? The Israelites are so arrogant. I need you to cut your military down in half and then, and, and then go face them. So they do it. And then it gets cut in half again until you've got just farm boys with sticks surrounding a whole army and the Lord brings about an incredible victory. It was a powerful message that the people would not grow arrogant, that they would remember who delivers them and return to God. Or I think of David, a, a non-fighting aged youth, just a boy who was a shepherd who takes on the lead champion of the Philistines. He goes out to face him, not because he was a skilled warrior. We sometimes mix up the timeline. At that point, David was not a skilled warrior. He was just a boy. Even when referring to killing a lion and a bear, he says, God delivered me from a lion and a bear. If I get in a fight and I tell you God saved me in that fight, you know I fought someone bigger than me. He is not skilled. It was to show Israel that God was their champion who fights their battles, that he would be the one to do it, that he miraculously gets the glory for that. And what's interesting is I think when you read the life of David, you hear how people praised him, exalted him, and looked up to him. It's interesting that in Scripture and at that time, people don't bring up the Goliath killing. It wasn't, it wasn't this huge thing of honor for him because his honor came from his faith in God, not his skill as a warrior. And when you see a little kid beat Goliath, you know that God is in there. At these nexus moments, these critical times, God makes it very clear, this had to be done by God and God alone. He could have easily delivered Israel without splitting the Red Sea, but it was the beginning of their story, the beginning of their journey, and he had to do it miraculous so that they wouldn't say, we were just a lot faster than those horses and chariots. In these moments, to God alone be the glory. I've been thinking about this because today we're going to read a story that's so critical this way, and it sets up, and the whole theme is this way. It's the conquest of Jericho, the first city to fall. How do we sum up this victory? I want to show you a picture. I saw this this week. It's perfect. And my mom took this. So there's my nephew, Ollie. He's flipping over lawn chairs in my parents' house. My daughter, Victoria, is trying to stop him. Count the chairs. Ollie's winning. Uh, 
And I saw this, and I, and I, was, trying to, I was trying so hard to think of a good analogy for you guys, and I came up with this. Next one. Uh, Jericho, God, Israel. That's the story right there. Uh, this is what it was. An incredible display of God's power and might to conquer a city while Israel is in the shade and it's PJs and a sippy cup. Uh, an amazing move of God. We have to remember, this is the first city to be conquered in the promised land proper. There has been a east of the Jordan compromise at this point. A few tribes asked Moses, hey, can we, can we have east of the Jordan and not go into the promised land? He says, yes, we'll call it the promised land. But it really begins, where the promise really begins, Abraham's promise begins west of the Jordan. In fact, do you know who lives east of the Jordan in the New Testament? Samaritans, uh, the ones that are considered cut off and half Israelites that the Jews hate so much. This is the promised land proper, first city to be taken. And the message uh, it's, it, of how the city is taken and what happens and the miraculous power in it sends this clear message uh, from God to say this, may this first battle be your ever reminder that by your hand or my hand through yours, I am the Lord and I alone subdue your enemies. Over this great encouraging book of Joshua comes the most depressing book, Judges, where God delivers, does miracles, and the people immediately serve their idols again. They can't remember. They forget. They forget. They forget. One generation sees God move, and then they just fail completely to pass it to their kids. Remembering is so critical. And this was to be a thing of remembrance. One of the reasons why Joshua is written is that Israel would not forget God's faithfulness. Also, I'll, I'll say, if you know, if you go back to the photo, um, one person's missing that's critical in the story. It's because there isn't a third baby that I could have highlighted as Rahab. Uh, in this story, there's a few people that are critical in play, and, and those four should be there. God, Jericho, Israel, and Rahab, because she is critical as to what happens, she is a major character of all the people that are being talked about and the names that go around. She is key in the, in the conquest and destruction of Jericho, the only one given a name in the city. So if you want a brief refresh on who she is, we, we decided to, I decided to take that and kind of push it into this story. But uh, she is in chapter 2, before they cross the Jordan, before these miraculous signs begin, before the manna stops, um, Joshua repeats something that Moses did. He sends spies into the land. And they go to Jericho first, which is odd. As I've explained to you, Jericho is in the middle. It would be like uh, conquering the U.S. and starting with Denver. It's just a bizarre place to begin, but that's where they go. And while they're there, it, it's, these are small towns. You don't hide very well. People would have known that you were a foreigner, and it would have been polite to invite someone in. So they go to a woman named Rahab. She's a prostitute. She invites them in her house. They're staying there. And when the king finds out that there are Israelites spying out the land, he goes in search of them and finds out that, they, that Rahab saw them last. And he says, where are they? He says, and she lies to the king, says they're gone. They left. If you go search for them, you can find them. So all the fighting men leave. And when she goes to the Israelite men, the two of them, she makes them enter a promise with her, and she says some things that are really incredible. She's the only Canaanite to see it. She, says, she affirms that their God is real, 
They, she affirms that, the, that all of the Canaanites who should feel brave, who have their cities, are quaking in fear because they have the power of their God. And she says, if you have mercy on us, I will release you. And she basically takes on uh, eventually their God. The only Canaanite convert is a woman named Rahab. She's critical in this story. We'll come back to her in a bit. But as we look at this theme of just how important is it that God gets the glory? How important is it comes back to it is it sets up so much beyond the fact that these are bizarre battle instructions they're going to get. They're essentially not battle instructions, and that's what makes them bizarre. You're going to march around a city, then you're going to blow the big worship horns, and then you're going to watch as a miracle takes place. It's preceded by a few things. One is that as soon as they cross the Jordan, when the miracle happens, the Jordan splits and they cross, all of the men of fighting age are circumcised, uh, which is a really painful way to remember crossing the Jordan. Um, But they are. And the thing is, we can make jokes about it, but it's important to know this about circumcision. It was a critical symbol of who they belonged to, that they would be marked in, in the most intimate way, in the most personal way, and in a way that has also to do with expanding and growing the civilization. Procreation itself, as vulgar as that seems, the image about it is that you are marked by God with the fruit of who you are, at the core of who you are, you belong to him. And it's symbolic, as Joshua says, he's removed the reproach of Israel on that day. They take part in the Passover feast. The first thing they do in the promised land before they really take anything is they enjoy the Passover feast. And then as they're coming in, this happens. We're going to start at the end of chapter 5 in verse 13. It says, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him. with a, I'm not going to cry in the first verse. Come on, Sam. With a sword drawn in his hand, Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down on the ground in reverence, and he asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And Joshua did so. This is broadly considered by theologians and commentators to be uh, one of the first Christophanies. A Christophany is the appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. There's a few theories as to who the, the, the chief of hosts is that's meeting them in this scene. Uh, some would have said it might be Michael. Michael, the archangel, seems to be, from what we understand of him, first of the heavenly hosts. He seems to be uh, first of them all. His name, Michael, means one who is like God. But there are a few things that make this seem very much to be God himself. One is that when humans fall down and bow to angels in Scripture, they're rebuked, and, he, and Joshua is not. And the fact that this person repeats the words of the great I am, take off your sandals for the place you're standing is holy ground. Being the Lord of hosts showing up says some really powerful things. Before we move on, I think it's worth dwelling on Joshua's question. Are you with us or are you for our enemies? And the interesting thing, the answer is no, human. This is heaven. The only question is, who are you for? We can ask questions, is God a Democrat or Republican, Catholic or Protestant? And these questions, they really don't matter very much. 
The only thing that matters is that above all covenants, convictions, opinions, and bonds, are we foremost dedicated to the cause of heaven and our God? That, it's, that heaven doesn't choose sides. Heaven is a side. Are we choosing this side? This is God's holy and chosen people. And heaven says, we are not for you. The question is, are you for us? What's amazing is it starts out after this meeting, the first thing it says in chapter six, now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. The meaning is that this is heaven's concern with Jericho. And the city is already under siege. Seized with fear at the sign of what their God did at the Jordan. Seized with fear because we can sometimes, we imply or we push our own cultural view on this that it's like atheism versus religion and it's not. These are people that believe that every God was a real God and that the bigger, more powerful gods won. As they arrive here, they find that heaven already has the city under siege. And siege is how you would have likely have taken a city like Jericho. We use the word siege very wrong in modern culture. You know, you watch these movies, uh, Troy or Lord of the Rings, when an army comes and they're going to take a city, that's not siege, that's force. When you come in and you're going to break in and you're going to get in and destroy the army inside, that's taking a city by force. Siege is when you would surround a city and starve it into submission. And so, for instance, the castle in Edinburgh, their big uh, boast there in Scotland is the city that castle's never been taken by force. The English never took it by force. It was too fortified. It was only taken under siege. Siege is how you would take it. Taking it by force is incredibly bold. And not because sometimes we, you can hear people think, describe Jericho as these infinitely tall walls. It actually wasn't. But for the people that were there, it was an immovable object. No siege equipment, no mass empire to get around it. It was big enough. You don't have to think that your problems have to be the worst that you've ever heard of for them to be big enough to be difficult or for God to work on your behalf. The city is already under siege. Do we realize that when we arrive at the battles in our life that God has always been there first? If with all the troubles that are ahead, and there are many troubles ahead, this is a troubled life, you should know that God has gone ahead of you and has begun unraveling them. That the solutions to those problems, he is already working at. One of the biggest lessons of Sabbath is you do nothing believing God is taking care of it. Yes, you could go plant more seeds today. Yes, you could go mend the fence. You need to trust God that he provides food and he provides boundaries to trust that God is at work. Our victory isn't found in perfect planning and strategy. It comes as we join God in his already existing attack on our problems. Seek first the kingdom of God on the battlefield and this victory will be given to you. If you wanna win, get closer to God. Find out what he is at work at in your life, already holding under siege, already dealing with, then the Jerichos of your life, they're not going to just face you alone. They're going to face the Lord of heavenly hosts. Let's read about this bizarre ceremony. Verse 2 in chapter 6. Then the Lord said to Joshua, this is actually kind of interesting. So we get the angel comes, he falls on his face. 
cuts the city, cuts back, you're supposed to pick up on the tension. Whoever wrote this book wants you to feel the tension of the situation, the, the sense of swirling uh, nuclear fallout that's about to become Jericho. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Uh, have seven priests carrying the trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear the sound of a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout, and the wall of the city will collapse, and the army will go up, every man straight in. There is so much about this ceremony. This is not a battle plan. You're going to go, you're going to do a very religious thing. It's going to be covered in sevens, sevens being the divine number. The priests will go ahead of you. You're going to use the ram's horns that you use for a call to worship. The ram's horn is uh, in Hebrew, shofar. They were these big ram's horns. They would boil and get really hot till they straightened them out. And they only made one tone, meaning they weren't for playing music on. It was a signal. And they used it in two times in warfare to signal when you hear the ram's horn, you'll charge with the cavalry. Or they would use it in worship when you hear the ram's horn come to the temple or to the tabernacle. So in all of this, it is just completely covered with the images of what God is going to do. Israel's instruction isn't about battle, but it's about the ceremony. As they perform this ceremony unto God, God provides a real and actual victory. Collapsing of walls would be catastrophic to a city because all of the fortifications are on the walls. The guards are on the walls. The point where they pour out tars on walls, where they throw rocks down is from the wall. If the wall collapses, it won't just be that the defenses are open. It means the defenses were destroyed and the city is without anything to defend itself. Everything in one foul soup, one, one implosion gone. And you know what's incredible, and it's not included in this description. We know where Rahab's house was. Rahab the prostitute lowered the men out a window out her door because she lived in the wall. Her home was in the wall. With a scarlet cord, she ties off inside the house. She runs it outside the city wall, and the men rappel down, and that's how they escape. Meaning that when God collapsed the wall, every inch of it fell except for one area. The promise was clear. The, what they told her is, you were to go into your house. You are to tie the scarlet cord outside your window. And when we see it, we won't attack that house and we'll kill no one inside. Your whole family better be inside because they must if they were going to be safe. It was a promise the spies made that God honors that her house goes unattacked in the divine attack. It's an amazing thing that happens. Why a ceremony, though? Because it prepares people's hearts to give glory to God that we would know, that we would remember, that it would be something ongoing. In the same way we took communion today, this ceremony, that as we feel and experience from this day forward, the ongoing, rejuvenating, regeneration of God in our lives, we would know where it comes from as we remember. Why do we pray when we know God knows everything? Why do we take communion? Because prayer is ceremony that prepares our hearts. Human cooperation is letting God do his work, and we just look at him and focus on him and remember who it is who does these things.
it is a steady reminder that we wouldn't grow arrogant. The human fallen reflex is always to steal God's glory. One of the reasons that they wanted to consume the forbidden fruit in Genesis is that they would be like God. We want to take that glory. We want to take the glory for the things that he's done. And gratitude to God is the therapy that corrects this disorder. That we'd be grateful to God. Romans 1 says that uh, mankind, uh, did I put that up here? Is Romans 1 on there? All right. Oh, that's what I was going to just summarize. Romans 1 says that humanity is they fell. The moment of their depravity was when they began to no longer give thanks or glorify God. That as they forgot who he was, there was a time that everyone knew they were created by him. Grandpa was created by him. Great-grandpa was created by him. Even after Noah, the entire human race is down to one family. Again, one family that knew God. And forgetting to give thanks and to give glory is what made, him, made them forget. Suddenly, God saved us becomes we saved us. And God is forgotten. This condition is an infection within every single one of us still present, that if we do not work at remembering the ravages of mankind stealing God's glory is going to wreak an incredible havoc as we forget everything that we have, as we take it for granted. God is no glory hog. It is our good that we would remember and glorify him, that we wouldn't grow spiritually dim. He does not make sure that he gets the glory, that it comes back to him because he's full of himself. He does it because it is true that it all comes from him, that every good thing comes from the Father of heavenly lights, that he puts, sends rain on the righteous and the wicked. People that have never heard his name, that harvest fruit from the earth, take it from the hand of the Father. He gives all things and his glory is given back to him. We remember him and it changes us. Ceremony is a remembrance matter, so keep reminding yourself. Pray, read scripture, keep rhythms that, of remembrance for you. I've shared several times my testimony of keeping Sabbath, having a day that I do nothing, uh, just as a day of worship. It's had an enormous impact on me because every week I cannot escape the ceremony of remembering that God's done all things. We are not meant to have our own glory. This isn't the human calling to be glorious and to be a glorious human that shines out. Humans are meant to reflect God's glory, that his glory comes down into us, that it isn't us originating from us, but we are mirrors, that God shines his glory on all of creation through the crown of his glory that is humanity. We're meant to reflect his glory back to him. And this is our calling. What have I done here? There, so we're flipping it. Hold on. Joseph, I might need the notes that you have because I think... Nope, never mind, sorry. I'm flipping my notes wrong. I can't weed the flower beds. I flipped my notes wrong. You're, I'm going to want to get this right or we're all going to be in regret. There we go. Hi. All right. 
Um, I think we're here. Uh, the battle begins, and before it begins, I think it's worth asking, why wait? Why wait until now? Abraham was promised the land generations ago. Genesis 15, 16 says that the reason he had to wait is because the sin of the Canaanites was not complete. That this is a dual thing happening, judgment and inheritance at the same time. Why is it that God is destroying Jericho? It is judgment. And the weight of sin is refusing to be God's mirror, for humanity to refuse to do its base function. It's like a car that won't drive any longer. It's no use to you anymore. If humanity, the mirrors of God's glory, refuse to do that, they take the glory on for themselves. They become so polluted and so hard-hearted that despite the fact that a divine miracle has taken place outside their city gates, only one person would change their mind. Only one person converts. This is a hopelessly sinful situation. I think it's really important for us that we, that we live in the new covenant and in blessing and in grace and forgiveness, that we never lose sight of the fact that we deserved complete destruction. We cannot lose sight of that. Jesus did not make sin smaller. It's now not a big deal anymore. That's not how it works. What happened is, is that he made forgiveness bigger. We are treated with such mercy uh, from God, and we mustn't steal his glory about that. To say, well, I'm treated with such mercy because I deserve such mercy because I'm such a good person. You don't deserve such goodness. To heal, to him alone goes that glory. You don't deserve the goodnesses in your life. He is that good that he pours it out anyway. By his glorious forgiveness, we're treated as well as we are. The fact is, is Rahab deserved death, just as we all deserve death. And she's given life. She also failed to be God's reflection, spending her life worshiping other gods, living how she was brought up to live. And yet her section of the wall stands not because of her strength. It stands because of her meekness and humility to recognize the awesome power of God and to submit. Her act of faith is in both what she says, the whole nation is afraid because of your God, and what she does to hide and to sneak them away, believing and showing through her actions she really believes in the might of God. She's a beautiful example of faith, both in our words and in our actions. And I want to read about the invasion now. We're going to start in verse... 16. This is the seventh time around. This is the seventh day, seventh time around. Divine, divine. When the priest sounded the loud trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given the city into your hands. The city and all its people in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute uh, and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. Continuing, we're going to jump to verse 24. Uh, says they, then they, this is after they break in. Then they burn the whole city and everything in it, and they put uh, the silver and golden articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with all her family and all who belonged to her because she had hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. 
Interesting phrase, she lives among the Israelites to this day because we actually don't know when this book is written. Meaning it could have been written when she was literally still alive, but in their culture, it also could have meant when her descendants are still alive. And when you married into a family, when you became part of that, you were with them. There's something really incredible about this. Remember the, the, the Christophany comes, the Lord comes to him, gives him his commandments, tells him how to take the city. It's all ceremony. 86 words in the Hebrew text are devoted to Rahab's rescue. The destruction of the entire city has 102. The account concludes something very important to note, that in the heart of heaven, that kingdom that showed up that said, are you loyal to us or not? In the heart of God, the Lord of heavenly hosts, this was a dual operation, conquest and a rescue operation. If only Rahab could have been in my silly photo. Rahab is the only Canaanite who converts and follows God. She marries a Judahite named Salmon. Together they have a son named Boaz. Boaz is the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David. And to end all the way down, that bloodline flows to Jesus, the eternal son of David. Saving her becomes this guarantee of her place in the kingdom. It isn't just this thing to where she's rescued from Jericho, that everything collapses, that she's shown mercy, she's spared her death, she's spared what she deserves to pay and is given mercy. And that was the end of it. It's just the beginning. It's amazing to think as you read this, people say, well, was she really around that day? Was she not? I would say through Christ, we could still say Rahab is among the Israelites today. God is not done with her through saving her. He is only just beginning. He conquers the land, and we find out through her lineage in the New Testament, he conquers her heart. Her name is now fulfilling this incredible purpose that she had once rejected. She is a mirror of God, reflecting his glory. That through her, through her story and the mercy that's shown to her, when we look at Rahab, we don't see Rahab. We see God reflecting off of her. We see God's mercy as he took care of her, as he saw her. The incredible miracle, why start with the Denver of Canaan? Because it was the only city that had a convert. It was, it was the first place to go. When, when warfare breaks out, one of the first things that ever happens is this rescue extraction of ambassadors and people loyal to the country. The first thing that happens when Canaan is, is conquered, when it goes after, is the first city is Jericho. The first contact is Rahab. And the last order is that she is spared. God's dedication to her is incredible, that she is Rahab. She is Rahab the prostitute no longer. And she's Rahab the ancestor of the Messiah. God is dedicated to us. He's dedicated to us. That from the time he saved us, his dedication doesn't fade. He's already done the biggest thing for you. When we ask ourselves, will God work on my behalf? Will he really do these things? In such questions, the Apostle Paul says this, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, will he also not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? 
having not withheld his most precious possession from us. The cross stands as an eternal reminder that at our lowest, at our worst, we were saved. At our lowest, at our worst, we were chosen. And that was not the end, but the beginning. That's why it's so critical. We cannot lose sight of the gracious thing we were saved unto, that we deserve destruction, we deserve death, and we were saved from it. Because from that launch point of that level of grace, God is faithful to us forever. He is already fighting for you. His siege works are laid against your enemies, so take courage. He is with you until the ends of the earth. Him on the cross is your sign forever. God is sold out to you. He has already done the most incredible thing. He has already paid the highest price he could pay for you. Everything else is ongoing faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that today we would have courage not based in our own skill or what we can do for ourselves. Lord, through every ceremony we do, even now in praying, we remember who we're with that you are the one who brings destruction down on the walls. You are the one who acts on our behalf. Lord, the doubting voice within us that says, but God won't act on my behalf. Lord, let us remember that you already did. Doing the greatest thing, something far beyond what we are asking you and expecting you and calling for you, Lord, deliver us now. If you wouldn't withhold your own son, from people so depraved and fallen away from you? Wouldn't you also, now that we have the Son, glorify us and give us victory in our lives? Lord, our courage doesn't come from what is within ourselves. In the same way that glory doesn't come from within ourselves, Lord, we reflect you. Let us reflect courage because you are with us, that you are among us. Lord, give us spiritual eyes that as we come to face our enemies, we would see the Lord of heavenly host already there. Let us go everywhere in life completely aware of the presence of God that is with us. Lord, we just speak it over ourselves, over the doubt we've spoken. God is dedicated to us. He has proven it. Let us be courageous in our lives, knowing that you're with us. We give you this week. We give you our lives. Help us to remember. Let us not forget the incredible glory of your gracious gift. In your name we pray. Amen.